Is there value in reading the classics at a time when they're increasingly viewed as tools of white supremacy and oppression? Do they still speak to non-white students? Or has the growing diversity of our classrooms made so-called great books obsolete? Today's episode is the first of an occasional series in which we will consider whether and how the literary canon may be rethought. I spoke with Dr. Anika Pratha, founder and principal of the Living Water School in Maryland and lecturer at Howard University in DC. Anika is determined to recover what she sees as the long and remarkable history of the significance of classics, especially for African Americans. I started our conversation by asking how exactly she came by her love of the classics. Um, it was a really interesting journey. I had just graduated from NYU and my parents decided to open a classical school. And I thought they were crazy because I had a BA already in education from Howard. And I just felt it's so important if you're going to teach black students that you only teach them their literature, that these works of the canon aren't relevant. So they start the school. They need help. And so I set up the performing arts program at my parents' school. The school ran for 10 years. And during the course of my time there, I came upon a great books class. The teacher, who was a wonderful teacher, though, was struggling with making the, the text relevant. And she even said, why would your parents found a school for black people that uses texts that are irrelevant to their culture? And even though I agreed with her, those are my parents. I'm extremely loyal to my parents. So I decided to help her figure out how to make the text relevant. Well, in order to do that, I had to read the text for myself. Once I began to read them, my mind instantly changed about them. So I was reading your book, Living in the Constellation of Stars, and you talk about how these texts cast a spell on you. I found it yes. very fascinating yes. that you use the word spell yes. and you say, you know, this is something that is associated with like witchcraft, but this was, can you speak a little more about what these texts really did for you as in for Anika? Yeah, it, I mean, you really do feel like you come under a spell. I'm going to talk about me and I'm going to give an example outside of myself. I was looking at an article called The Platonic Black Panther, and it talks about how Huey P. Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther, was inspired by Plato's Republic, especially the allegory of the cave. And it says that once he learned to read and got past that obstacle and began to read for understanding and inspiration, he too came under a spell. And he was like, I'm going to free all black people. And once he learned how to read, because he used Plato's Republic to teach himself how to read, he read Plato's Republic 10 times. And then once he learned to decode it, he was able to read to understand it. And once, I guess by that 10th time, he was like, oh my gosh, I got to free everybody. And so that story was me too. Because as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, these are for me. This is about me. This is my life. And other people need to read this. Why isn't everyone reading this? You know, Du Bois often talks about us living behind a veil. And he, of course, was a big supporter of the classics, but he was also a civil rights activist. But he felt that something about the classics releases us from the veil. And that, that narrative that these texts are not relevant to people of color, especially black people, is actually a myth not even created by black people. It's created by white people who didn't want us to have access to these texts. And when I read them for myself, two things happened for me, which I think also happened for Huey P. Newton. 
when I read them, I was like, oh, this is why you don't want me to read these texts. There are some revelations I'm having about my equal humanity. I'm learning about liberation, freedom, equality. Um, I'm learning that you're not superior to me. I'm gaining the rhetorical skills to fight for our liberation. Through reading someone else's story, I'm learning how to survive my own hard story. Very, very, very liberating texts. So there's something very interesting. You know, I find this juxtaposition of casting a spell Mm -hmm. And these texts being liberatory, really fun to play with. Because when you think about someone casting a spell, you think about losing agency. You think about, you know, being under the influence of someone else. Yes. But what's fascinating is that the influence of these texts is such that you found it liberatory. And you're not the only one. Like you said, there are many African-Americans in our own history who have been inspired by and liberated through these yes. texts. Yes, yes. As you notice in the chapter, I went through the etymology of the word spell. Yeah. And even though, you know, the, the Wiccan community or witches or whatever maybe have appropriated that term to mean something, let's look at the whole concept of casting a spell. Mm-hmm. Now, those who are listening, I'm a deeply religious person, but I still was fascinated, right, with this concept of spell. What is it? The magic of words. The magic of the written word. And the power in the words. And so when you think of a a person casting a spell, they're putting some words together to bring forth a certain power. If we go back to the narrative, even if you believe this is a myth, just roll with me because we all, all of us who are into the canon and classics read myths and gods and goddesses and all that. So roll with me here, no matter what you believe. So if you look at the story of the creation, how was the world created? Through words. Oh, that's why I got excited about that concept of spell. He spoke and there was the sun. He spoke and there was the moon and the water and the land and the trees. He spoke. And so if you take that word, that, that's like kind of how a spell works. It's, it's power in words. And so the canon, if you look historically, and this is not, when I talk about the canon, I'm very careful on who I choose to talk about. I don't talk about every black person who read the canon. It's very important that I say this because I'm not talking about assimilationists. There were assimilationists. There were, there were elitists. There were black people who read the canon to feel better than their own people because of their own self-hatred. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about our freedom fighters. I'm talking about our formerly enslaved people who were inspired by the works of the canon to fight for our liberation, our freedom, our equality. And so what happened? Why is it that when Martin Luther King studied classics and he says these classics and the canon, all the works of philosophy inspired the civil rights movement, what is it about that particular order of words? Because a spell is you have to say the words in an exact way for a certain power to be released, right? And so what is it about the orchestration of the words found in the works of the canon that evokes this power in people that you see over and over and over? And I don't know if people fully understand that the power of the canon is so pervasive in black history, you can't get away from it. It's not just some little arbitrary group over here who got together and read and somehow overcame their troubles. 
most black people that we look up to today, whether they're passed away or still alive, if you read back in their narrative, you're going to find the work of a canon. And, and, and that canon infused them with this spell, with this power that gave them these rhetorical skills, these speaking Oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Because when you talk about, because I haven't talked about the spell to anyone, you know, that's just in my book. And I'm so thankful you noticed that. And so what is it, though? Because they all develop these rhetorical skills. They all develop these writing skills, this magical use of words that were able to help people who were black and white say, this is wrong. We need to stop this. We need to bring change. And so when we are kept from these magical texts, that we see historically have been behind the works of all of our great liberators, we kind of stop that tradition. I often ask people who are interested in the classics, you know, how do you define a classic? And, and there's several ways, but I think you're hitting on something quite important. You know, a classic is timeless. And yeah. why is it timeless is in part because it is able to cast a spell again and again and yes. again and again. Okay on various generations. I want to come to, um, you talk about this young student called Raymond in your book, who is this young African-American student who seemed very disinterested and disillusioned with education, not interested in, um, in doing much of anything really in school. And then you kind of drew him out through your great books course. And there's a quote here that you have of his that I'd like to just read out. He said, I think the English class impacted me the most this past year. I think it's because you had us read African-American literature along with the great books. I was able to see the whole story of African-Americans. When I read about our struggles through slavery and our mistreatment in this supposedly Christian nation, it made me think differently. Now, this quote really stood out to me, and you talk about how there is a long lineage, and mm -hmm. if you read texts just af by African Americans, you're only getting part of the story. Yep. Can you elaborate on that concept? Yeah. Yes. So, especially if you're reading texts of African Americans that, say, started in the very beginnings of America, let's say starting at 1776, that's kind of where my timeline begins because that's when America was founded, and that's the first, so far, document I have of a, an enslaved person reading classics and being inspired by it and coming under the power of a spell, <laughs> which would be Phyllis Wheatley, okay? And so let's start there. If you start from 1776, most of the literature written by black people from that time until desegregation or the passing of the Civil Rights Act is rooted in the canon. So the Harlem Renaissance, black people will talk all day. Oh, I love the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes and, you know, Dunbar and so and so forth. Duke Ellington, you know, the jazz even. Duke Ellington, even though he wasn't in literature, he was classically trained in music. And I always say classical is when you kind of get this sense of being Western educated. Classics in the academic realm or college or university realm is the study of ancient Greece and Rome, the, the literature, the art, the culture that comes from there. We expand on that when we say classical education or classical studies because you're saying we are inspired by those first texts, the ancient Greece and Rome times. 
but then we continue to honor those who cite those texts going forward. And so any black person who was writing, who was an activist, who was doing anything of influence and in, who really contributed to the progress of America from 1776 to probably, you know, it's very thick. It's like, so you have Toni Morrison was, was rooted in the classics. Zora Neale Hurston was rooted in the classics. All of the authors of the Harlem Renaissance were rooted in the classics. Richard Wright was rooted in the classics. Ralph Ellison was rooted in classics. All of them were rooted in classics. So when we, so I hope that I'm making that clear how important that is, right? Because these are all authors people still talk about and read today. They'll say, we need to read some Richard Wright. We need to read Black Boy. We need to read this. We need to read, have you read Toni Morrison? Okay, that's great. I'm glad you love my people's literature. But you are not really fully going to understand what they're saying because they are citing the canon so much in all of their texts. You're getting a good understanding but how much deeper will your understanding go if you are reading what they read so that when they are citing something or when they're making some type of a creative analogy that includes a sprinkling of Shakespeare or a sprinkling of Aristotle or a sprinkling of Socrates, you don't just read over it and keep trying to get to the other message. It's important for you to know, why did they put Aristotle in this text? Why does this story kind of remind me of some of the Greek myths or... You know, or even if you look at um, Kindred, there's this running theme of Robinson Crusoe. Like, I'm like, why does she keep talking about Robinson Crusoe in this book? I mean, she almost got beat to death because she wouldn't stop reading this book. She reads it to the master's son. She's caught reading it. The son's father beats her half to death. And this book, Robinson Crusoe, keeps coming up. And so many people will read Kendrick and just kind of skip. Oh, she's just reading a book. But there is a, there's a symbolism involved. And how do you know? Because if you listen to an interview of Octavia Butler, she talks about how she starts her day by listening to some work of the canon on audio tape. And in this interview, she said, well, this morning I got up and I listened to Hegel. She said, I read everything. And she said, and what that does, it inspires my writing. So if they're listening to the canon, if Angela Davis is following around some German philosopher <laughs> who, you know, is also rooted in Aristotle and Hegel. and Like, how can you understand how she's come to believe what she believes? And it doesn't mean that you're denying your heritage. That's not what you're doing. You're seeking to understand your ancestors. What were they doing to navigate this awful experience of being snatched from your homeland, plopped in a place that you don't know anyone, no language, you have no help, you're being brutally treated, what was it to help you get through it? Most of them were reading the canon to work through it. And why? Because they were trying to feed their soul. They were trying to find some hope within first because it was in getting that hope within that they were given the strength to do something in the external. And it's important for us as a people to understand that journey. And we understand it best by reading what they read. This is fabulous because it's really hitting on the idea that ideas don't belong to particular people. Yes. Ideas are universal and they're for everyone. And it reminds me of a quote. There are a couple of things that are coming to my mind that I'd like to share with you. A quote by Ruth Simmons, who was the first black president of an Ivy League. She was the president of Brown. And at some point she was asked, you know, how did she get inspired by French literature? And what did a, a tenant farmer's kid from the wrong side of the tracks of this country 
find in French literature. And she said, because everything belongs to me. There is nothing that is withheld from me simply because I'm poor. That's what children have to understand. And I found that so incredibly inspirational. And it, it you know, dovetails nicely. We interviewed Dewey Crumpler, who is an African-American painter, and he talked about being inspired by European artists. And, and again, I posed the question to him that many people find that at this point in time, we shouldn't be engaging with the Western canon. And he said, if it's in the world, it's for me. Is, is it? And I find that fantastic. And you're, you're hitting on that, that in some ways, parsing this out as what belongs to you and what belongs to me is reinforcing the very oppression and um, hierarchies that we are trying to fight. Yeah, even the word... I don't like to talk negatively about people or openly disagree with them. I just feel like people are entitled to their belief systems. But I want to talk about the word disrupt. And I hope I'm not offending anyone, please. But the word represents a control. Like, I'm going to stop you from doing something. And the reason why I struggle with just that wording is because that has been the black people's experience. People were always disrupting their texts. Like, if we go back to the story Kindred, Oh my gosh, I'm starting. I don't know why I'm starting to feel like I want to cry on this. But she with the the illustration of her being transferred back into the South during slavery and she sneaks into the master's library and she's caught with the book and she's caught teaching people to read. And what does the master do? He disrupts her from reading Robinson Crusoe. Okay. Frederick Douglass, while the master's wife was teaching him to read. And then he found his way into the Colombian orator. He has a part in his book where he talks about, and every time I got a book, I was disrupted. Someone was stopping me from reading. I think Jessica Hooten Wilson says a comment that I've heard her say that I really am drawn to. She said, instead of talking about stopping something, why don't we talk about expanding? Why don't we talk about expanding? Still read these texts, but it's okay to add to them because so many people from different ethnic groups are citing these texts. Mortimer Adler's rule for creating the canon says, if you are referencing any work of this canon, you will become a part of the great conversation. I kind of use that rule in how I choose texts. So if they're not on the original list, if I see them say one word from the canon, they're part of the great conversation. And so I think we need to expand the list it's because we're all referencing it. I read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. And like in the first few chapters, he's talking about Prometheus Bound. Or he's talking about, it's a sad thing, but not only am I a child of Africa, I'm a child of the West. This is not necessarily a beautiful thing, but it, as I say, and I hope no one thinks I'm being flippant, it is what it is. Like, this is what happened. We were taken from Africa and brought into slavery, right? And what did we do to deal with that pain? We snuck into the master's library. We were listening in on his children's lessons. We were, we were tricking the master's children to read Shakespeare to us or to sell us their books in exchange for me doing some extra chore. And why were we so intrigued by this? Well, number one, a lot of people think the black people's existence began in America with slavery. And I always want people to understand slavery is not our heritage. It's something bad that happened to us. It's an unfortunate event in our life, but our heritage does begin in Africa. If you read a lot of these slave narratives, the ones that were taken from Africa and brought to America, you will notice a pattern. And that pattern is as soon as they get here, they want to learn to read. What does that tell you? Because see, the white narrative will tell you we're just these illiterate, uncivilized 
animals running through African jungles with the monkeys. And that's not true. We were a very literate people. We just didn't know English. We were very literate. We had a spoken, we were definitely oral, but we also had a written language. The Adinkra symbols and beyond, the pyramids tell us that we were writing. So when we got here, what were we looking for? We were like, okay, where's the written word? And the only written word that was available to us at that time was the canon, were classics. And Ola Uda Equiano talks about how the things that were familiar to him in the new world are what helped him be strong. And one of them was religion. He said the religion of the new world, I think by the time he got to England or Europe, it reminded him of how he worshiped. And so spirituality wasn't foreign to black people when we got to America. This is actually why a lot of black people became Christian because it reminded them of the gods they were worshiping in their tribe, the nature of it. Ola Uda Equiano says it. He says, I just naturally became a Christian because it reminded me of how I worshiped back in my homeland. The reason when we came to Africa and we were drawn to Christianity or we were drawn to the canon and classics, these were things that seemed familiar to us. So when an African would read about the Greek myths, you can see similarities between Greek goddesses and African goddesses because they had no family. They couldn't even wear their cornrows the way they used to. Everything that was familiar to them or that reminded them of home was taken from them. But the ancient texts somehow reminded them of home because the ancient texts were already at home. Because the ancient world was constantly intersecting with each other. Africa was going into Rome and Greece and Greece was going into Africa. And so these memories, these faint memories of home could be found in some of these Western traditions. There are people who will kind of bristle at the canon and particularly, you know, refer to them and say, well, these are white people. And you, you've already talked about the crossover between Africa and Greece and these kind of conversations that predate what we commonly know to be cross-cultural exchanges. It's fascinating to me that people see Greek writers as white. I don't think they were <laughs> always seen as such. And, and this kind of begs the question, you know, that we are not understanding how whiteness itself is a creation. Yeah. So when people say, well, the Western canon, the Greeks are white, could you speak to that a little bit? I think it's important to, um, and I know a lot of people feel he's a little bit controversial. Frank Snowden is one, I believe Martin Banal. There are different scholars. They kind of unpack the African presence in the ancient world. And it wasn't just some little bit over here. It was just, Africa was very much infused in the ancient world. It's so sad how much the experience in America has scarred all of us, not just black people, but white people too, where we're stuck, as Du Bois would say, behind this veil, where we think everything is behind this color line and everything is divided by the whites only and blacks only sign. That whole period from slavery through Jim Crow has really messed all of us up, where we take that experience and transfer it to the ancient world. Now, I know the ancient world is not perfect. There was slavery. There was even some form of prejudice there. But it was still very different than our whites only, blacks only world that we experienced. And one thing to prove that would be if you read a lot of the classic texts, especially the Greek historians, Plutarch and Herodotus often reference Africans, Ethiopia, Egypt, 
all of the ancient African civilizations, a lot of them are talked about extensively in these texts. Okay, I even have here, I can't wait to dig into it, is this book by Plutarch on Isis and Osiris, which are Egyptian gods and goddesses. And where I'm going with that is they just didn't think in terms of, okay, they're from Africa. I'm not going to write about them. Um, I, I don't want anyone to know. Like Euclid didn't say, oh, I don't want anyone to know that I got this concept about geometry from the Egyptians. I'm going to lie and say it's really from the Greeks. Like they didn't do that kind of stuff. No, we, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Ownership. <laughs> and that's what I mean by it's different. I know it's not. So sometimes people will say, what do you mean there was no racism? I'm not saying it was not, didn't have its own issues. It probably, it had some very serious issues, you know. But what I'm trying to say is the way the story is told oftentimes doesn't ignore the contributions of people of color. It doesn't try to make it seem like the world existed without people of color. Herodotus talks very beautifully about the Ethiopians, the great and long-lived Ethiopians. So the other thing people need to understand is that we have even taken the color line and put it on Africa. Like we've divided Africa based on the Jim Crow times. So sub-Sahara, Northern Africa, because they want to believe that, well, no, the, the North Africa was really white people. No, 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 no. In ancient times, Africa was just Africa. You could have somebody living in Ethiopia who was from West Africa because these African civilizations were actual empires that spanned the continent. And most of them looked as chocolate or more than myself. <laughs> and so these ancient historians are referencing black people when they're talking about their contributions to literature, to history, to science, to math, they're not hiding that information. And so this gives us another reason why it's important for all of us to read them, because we can read them. We can read the Bible. See, a lot of times people will talk about, oh, the Bible, that's for white people, when literally 90% of the Bible is about people of color. And that's not hidden. So when people say, well, you know, King James, he, okay, well, I don't know who King James was. <laughs> But he doesn't hide who Ethiopia is. That translation doesn't hide Cush. That translation doesn't hide Egypt's power. And so all that to say is when we, in this time, try to take our experiences with racism and put it in the ancient times, we do all of ourselves a disservice because white people and black people need to know human origins. So the canon, especially classics, are about coming to understand our human origins. Anika Pratha, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fantastic and we really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you heard today and want more exclusive content, including access to my extended conversation with Anika Pratha, please consider becoming a paying subscriber to Booksmart Studios. Subscribers get transcripts, full interviews, and bonus segments. Oh, and don't forget to check out my most recent blog on the value of the literary canon. You can access it by visiting our website, booksmartstudios.org. Before I sign off, I have a request. Please comment, rate, and share what you've heard here today. And not just Banished, but also the other Booksmart Studios offerings like John McWhorter's Lexicon Valley and Bob Garfield's Bully Pulpit. The success of Booksmart and the impact of our work 
depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo. And I am Amna Khalid. Cheerio! Cheerio!